brothers and sisters. At first glance, this passage presents us with several difficulties. In the previous chapter, as you heard this morning, we are told how David spared the life of King Saul. Even though the Lord God had given Saul into his hands, he did not want to take his life. Saul was a wicked king. He had shed shed the blood of many innocent men, including the priests who faithfully served the Lord. And God clearly no longer was with Saul. Samuel himself had said so. And yet, David does not dare to lay his hand upon the Lord's anointed. He is even remorseful that he cut off a piece of his robe. But now look at this passage. It's almost as if we see a completely different man. It appears that David, in his encounter with Nabal, is now eager to shed blood. What Nabal did was nothing compared to King Saul. All Nabal did was to refuse David some food and drink. Yet David was ready to kill him and his whole household because of it. Isn't that contradictory and excessive in the least? And not only that, why should Nabal give anything to David? Oh, sure, David had protected his flocks, and he did not harm him or his men in any way. But it does not state anywhere that Nabal asked for such protection. Also, isn't it David's moral duty to respect another person's property? No one should have to reward him for this. Furthermore, as far as Nabal is concerned, David is a man on the run. He is wanted by the authorities. Why should he give Why should he have anything to do with him? If he helped him, Saul might even punish him for it and perhaps even kill him, just like he did the priests. Yet Abigail, Nabal's wife, sees it quite differently. She acts in a completely different manner from her husband. She chooses in favor of David and does everything in her power to please him and to give him what he wants, supplying him with an abundance of food and drink. She treats him as an honored guest. She is utterly subservient to him. Why does she do that? And so this passage raises a lot of questions. How do we understand all this? Well, congregation, let us remember that all the people of Israel at this point are being put before a choice. Samuel had just died. As one man, they stood at his grave. All of Israel mourned his death. Samuel had been the last judge of Israel. He had been an instrument in God's hand to keep the nation together. God spoke through Samuel. Everybody was also convinced of that. He was a most respected man of God. And so they looked to Samuel for leadership. But now after the death of Samuel, there is somewhat of a vacuum. 
Oh, sure, Saul was the anointed king, but the people were no longer sure about him. Was God going to rule Israel through Saul and his house? They knew that God was no longer with them. They also knew, however, that God was with David. And so the people are put before a choice. Should they follow David or should they follow Saul? Well, it's not an easy choice. Both Nabal and Abigail, however, made their choice. The one chose for Saul, the other for David. As far as David was concerned, Nabal made the wrong choice and Abigail the right one. That is why, according to David, Nabal had to be killed. He chose against David and insulted him. Was David right about this? Did David make the right choice? These are important questions to ask. For time and again, God puts you and me before a choice as well. He puts us before choices every day of our life. Sometimes important ones, and sometimes not so important. How do you choose? That's what I will preach to you about. It is about the choice for king. First we look at Nabal's choice, then Abigail's choice, and then finally David's choice. As I said, it appears that Nabal did not really have any other choice than to act as he did. David was an intruder on his territory. Nabal was the legitimate heir of the property on which he lived, for we are told that Nabal was a Calebite, which means that he was a descendant of Caleb. And Caleb, as we know from Numbers 14, verse 24, had been given his inheritance at Carmel after the conquest of Canaan. And this property, this property therefore, had belonged to his family for hundreds of years. And now along comes David and his men and demand a portion of the fruit of the land. David asked for that at the time when Nabal was shearing his sheep. Now, such a time, as it says in verse 8, was always a feast day, a festive occasion. That is why some years later, Absalom, David's son, also invited his brothers and sisters to his place at the time of sheep shearing. It was a time of celebration and sharing together with family and friends and with your neighbors. That's also what David expected in this instance. He considered himself to be a good neighbor of Nabal. After all, had he not looked after Nabal's property and his men during the time that he was there? And furthermore, David and his men were hungry and thirsty. And thirsty. Since they had to be on the run most of the time, they did not have time to grow and hunt food. And so they go to Nabal to ask him to share. This would not have been a hardship for Nabal, for we are told in verse 2 that he was a very rich and wealthy man. Among other things, he had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep. We also read in verse 36 that Nabal was wealthy enough to be able to hold a banquet like a king. Nabal had an abundance of possessions. But what happens? Although David's men greeted him in a most cordial and courteous manner, Nabal was not in a generous mood. On the contrary, he turns David and his men down with a curt and insulting answer. He says to them, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? 
Nabal, however, knew exactly who David was. David had been around for quite some time already. He had contact with his men for many months, and no doubt Nabal's own men will have reported that to him. And furthermore, David's exploits were also well known. The whole country had been talking about him, how he had first defeated Goliath, and then, as a commander in Saul's army, how he had defeated more men than Saul himself. And so it came about, as it says in 1 Samuel 18, verse 16, that all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. It even says in verse 30 of that same chapter that David's name became well known. Additionally, additionally, by this time he had become widely recognized as Israel's future king. Jonathan, Saul's son, knew that as a fact. No doubt, except in the presence of his father, he will not have kept quiet about it. Jonathan loved David and did, and did everything to protect and promote his name. The servants of Achish, the king of Gath, also knew about this David, for at one point he said to Achish, isn't this David the king of the land? Even Saul himself, as we saw in the previous chapter, expected David to become king. And so David was wildly known as such. But now Nabal asked the question, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Why does he say this? Well, no doubt to cast contempt upon him. Who is this David? As far as I'm concerned, he is a man of no account. I want nothing to do with him. And so Nabal made his choice. He chose against David and in favor of Saul. It does not say exactly what his motivations were, but it appears that it had a lot to do with the bottom line. For Nabal, this was an economic decision. He was not interested in upsetting the status quo. He liked things just the way they are. Under Saul, he had been able to maintain his position in Israel and to protect his property. To, to help David in any way would put his property and perhaps even his very life at risk. David was not worth it. And we read that David was so angry that when he hears about it, about his insulting answer, that he tells his men to put on their swords. He wants to put Nabal and his men to the sword, to death. But then Abigail comes upon the scene. She makes a different choice, and she saves the day. Second point. When Abigail heard from some of her servants that David is about to avenge himself, she immediately goes into action. It says she made haste. She took along 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five seahs, which is about 37 liters, of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes and pressed figs. She sent her servants ahead of her with these gifts. That's a lot of food and drink. Abigail is a wise and courageous woman that shows from her actions and from the words that she speaks. She realizes that disaster is about to fall upon her household. How do you act in such a situation? Well, you always do that by making the right choice. 
Abigail realizes that no matter what choice she would make, it would be a dangerous one. By currying David's favor, she knew that she would put her life in danger, first of all with Saul and his men, and secondly with her own husband. Nabal was not a nice man. He was mean, as it says in the NIV. Read about that in verse 3. It says there that he was harsh and badly behaved. Nabal could make life very difficult for his wife if she went against him. Nevertheless, she does. She is convinced that what she is about to do is right. She does not do this, first of all, to save her own skin and the skin of her own family. No, as we will see, it is clear from this whole account that she is convinced that this is the right thing before the Lord. She firmly believes that by going to David, that she is an instrument in the hands of the Lord. David is very angry, and she knows that for his sake and for her sake, and above all for the Lord's sake, that she has to calm him down and make him change his plans. How do you make people change direction? As office bearers and all of you sometimes have difficulty knowing how to do that. It's hard to make people change their minds. Do you do that by directly confronting them with what they are doing wrong? Well, usually not. Because if you do that, you come across as arrogant and all-knowing. And so it doesn't usually work either. You only do that as a last resort. What do you do then? Well, you always try to understand where the other person is coming from. You look at it from their perspective. That takes insight. That takes time. It takes patience. It takes wisdom. It takes a listening ear. And so what does Abigail do? Well, she does not want to feed David's anger in any way. She also knows, as it says in Proverbs 15, that a gentle answer turns away wrath but that a harsh word stirs up anger. Therefore, she does the absolute opposite of what her husband did. He was arrogant. She is humble. He was aggressive. She is gentle. He was unyielding and stubborn and unkind. She was open and honest and kind. Well, look at how she conducts herself. As soon as she meets David, she gets off her donkey and bows down before him with her face to the ground. She also calls him my Lord. She treats him as her superior and with respect. She also takes blame for what had happened upon herself. And in this way, she deflects David's anger away from her husband and her household. She is humble and says that's all her fault. Of course, that's not true, and David knows that. But by stating this, she makes David realize how serious the situation is for her and everything that belongs to her. Her lot is tied up with her husband, Nabal. In a sense, his actions are her actions. And whatever harms overcome, overcomes him will also overcome her. And now Abigail wants David to think about the consequences of his actions. And then she says that her husband, Nabal, is just like his name. His name is fool, and folly goes with him. But that is what the name Nabal means in Hebrew, fool. Now, why would she say this? 
Is this not deloyal, disloyalty or duplicity on her part? For she is convinced in her heart and mind that David is a servant of the Lord. As she says to David in verse 28, you are fighting the battles of the Lord. She also says that the Lord will certainly make David a sure house. That is, he will make a lasting dynasty for him, as another translation has it. You see, Abigail recognizes David as the future king of Israel, and that that is in accordance with the will of God. You may say, well, how does she know? How does she know whether or not David was destined to be king? Well, Abigail is a godly woman. She's a spiritual woman. And she knew how to interpret the things that were happening around her. She realized, for example, the significance of what happened not so long ago when David went to Samuel at Naoth in Ramah. You can read about this episode in the last part of chapter 19. Perhaps you can read this at home sometimes later today. At that time, it was made clear to all those there that the Lord God had chosen David to be king and that Saul had lost his kingdom. For what happened? Well, when Saul heard that David was with Samuel, he sent a group of men to capture David. But when these men saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, then the Spirit of God also came upon Saul's men, who began to prophesy as well. They were not able to capture David because of it. Then Saul sent some more men, but they prophesied as well. And the same thing happened a third time. And then Saul himself came. And then God protected David once again, for the Spirit also came upon Saul, so that he too was rendered powerless. Saul stripped off his robes and prophesied. And all of Israel heard about this. This was a clear indication to the people of Israel that Samuel, and therefore also God, protected David. God was with him. Abigail knew that the Lord was with David and that he was to be king. But she also knew that David was about to make a terrible mistake if he were to avenge himself on Nabal. That's not the Lord's will. She had to change his mind. It would be disastrous if she didn't. And so what else does she do? She states in verse 26 that the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Actually, at this point, David had not yet decided not to avenge himself. He was still intent on doing away with Nabal. Yet she acts as if he had already decided to go ahead with it. She does that to make him think. That is how she expects him to behave with wisdom and understanding and compassion. Why? Because David is a child of the Lord. And that is why she also calls upon God's covenant name. She appeals to him as a brother in the Lord not to make this terrible mistake that he is about to make. And that brings us to the third point. How does David respond? But David also has to make a choice. He either chooses the way of the flesh or he chooses the way of the spirit. He either gives in to his anger or he gives in to the Lord. Thankfully, David chooses for the Lord. 
He chooses God's spirit to move him. He says to her, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. David agrees with her. God's spirit worked through her. She made him realize that what he was about to do was wrong. She made him realize that especially by the words she spoke. She told him that the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for him. And she tells him that even though someone may be seeking to take his life, the Lord God himself will nevertheless securely bind him in the bundle of the living. God is going to do these things. In effect, she is saying to David, David, let God take care of Nabal. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Wait for the Lord to act. He will protect you. He will make you king in his day. Isn't that what God has promised? David, you must act in faith. And David accepts her, word with, her words with a humble heart. He knows that she is right. You must wait for the Lord. That's hard sometimes. It's hard for you and me as well. We want to take things into our own hands. We want to make things happen. We do this especially when we are young. It's hard to wait. It's hard to wait for marriage, for example. And so we act as if we're already husband and wife. It's hard to wait for your business to prosper. And so let's help things along a little by lowering our ethical standards a little here and there. It's hard to wait for others to act and get rid of a certain person who is impossible to get along with. And so let's help things along by slandering him or her or by plotting against him behind his back. At this point, David was on the wrong track, for he acted as if he was already king. He didn't want to wait for the Lord. For that reason, he saw the dealings of Nabal as insubordination. From his prescient perspective, he saw it as an act of rebellion against the king. For as king, he has the right to taxes of the land. As king, he has the right to have a portion of the produce of the land. And so from his perspective, Nabal had to give it to him. He was obligated. And Nabal should have realized with whom he is dealing here. He was not just dealing with some renegade. No, Nabal was dealing here with the anointed of the Lord. He was compelled to give him what he wanted. The problem was, however, that David was not yet officially and publicly made king. That still had to happen. And soon enough it does happen, for it does not take all that long, and the Lord's takes Saul's life in battle. But in the meantime, David had to be patient. Suppose David had taken the life of Nabal and his men. This would have legitimately been seen as an act of rebellion against King Saul. This would have been ammunition in the hands of David's enemies. This would have given Saul more ammunition to kill David. It would also have made David's life as king more difficult later on. He would have been seen as a man who took things into his own hands and who did not wait for the Lord to act. 
He would have been seen as someone who acted according to the flesh and not according to the spirit. And so Abigail was a very wise and astute woman. Above all, she was a very spiritual woman. She wanted most of all to do the will of the Lord. And she also wanted David to do the will of the Lord. In this way, she was also an instrument in God's hand to further the line of David, and thereby the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nabal and Abigail were both put before a choice, and so was the rest of Israel. Who was it going to be, Saul or David? Those who chose for David chose for the Lord God. But to choose for David carried with it many risks. You could lose your property, even your life. But what is worse, by making the wrong choice, by continuing to go along on such a path, you could lose your eternal life. As I said in the beginning, the Lord also puts us as New Testament church before a choice. At the time of the Lord Jesus, the people had to decide Barabbas or Jesus. Who's it going to be? The people had to decide. Are we going to take the side of the Pharisees? Or are we going to take the side of the Lord Jesus and those who belong to him? What will it be? And, that is not, and then it is not what is the safest choice, but which choice pleases the Lord. That's also the way it is for us, always. We too should ask, in whatever circumstances we have to make choices, do we choose according to the spirit or according to the flesh? Do we want to further our own cause or do we want to further God's cause? Those are the kinds of choices you and I have to make every day. Every day, God puts us before a decision. What shall I do in this or that circumstance? We always have to ask ourselves this question. Am I going to follow the way of the flesh, the way of man, or am I going to follow the way of God? How do I glorify, how do I please God in this? And some people may think that by requiring us to choose, that that is Arminian. But is it? No. For as Reformed people, we know that we have to make choices. But that once we have made the right decision, we can never boast of ourselves. For the Lord is the one who ultimately works everything in our hearts. And the glory is to him alone. But he does want us to make choices at all times. And he wants us to choose for him. Beloved congregation, the Lord God also wants you to walk a straight line. The road to damnation is a wide road. It's an easy road, for it goes the way of least resistance. It uses what you think is best for the moment. It wants to please the flesh. It wants to feed your anger. It wants to please men. The road to salvation, however, is a straight and narrow road. Sometimes it is hard to take that road. To take that road, there are costs involved, but it leads to salvation. Walking on that road gives you peace. It gives you a place in God's kingdom. Saul 
and Nabal became bitter and angry and condemned men. There was no peace in their lives. Abigail and David were children of God. Even though they were sinful people, God continued to bring them back on the right path, and they allowed God to do that, on that path to salvation in the kingdom of God. And so what road are you taking in life, brothers and sisters, young people? Think about that every time you are put before a choice. The one time Joshua also put the people before a choice. He said in Joshua 24, verse 15, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let the latter also be your choice, brothers and sisters, time and again. And the Lord will bless you and give you peace. Amen.